I'm going to read uh, Joshua chapter 20. Then the Lord said to Joshua, Say to the people of Israel, Appoint the cities of refuge of which I spoke to you through Moses, that the manslayer who strikes any person without intent or unknowingly may flee there. They shall be for you a refuge from the avenger of blood. He shall flee to one of the cities and shall stand at the entrance of the gate of the city and explain his case to the elders of that city. Then they shall take him into the city and give him a place, and he shall remain with them. And if the avenger of blood pursues him, they shall not give up the manslayer into his hand because he struck his neighbor unknowingly and did not hate him in the past. And he shall remain in that city until he has stood before the congregation for judgment, until the death of him who is high priest at the time. Then the manslayer may return to his own town and his own home to the town from which he fled. So they set apart Kadesh in Galilee in the hill country of Naphtali, and Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim, and Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the hill country of Judah, and beyond the Jordan east of Jericho, they appointed Bezer in the wilderness of the tableland from the, from the tribe of Reuben, and Ramoth in Gilead from the tribe of Gad, and Golan in Bashan from the tribe of Manasseh. These were the cities designated for all the people of Israel and for the strangers sojourning among them, that anyone who killed a person without intent could flee there so that he might not die by the hand of the avenger of blood till he stood before the congregation." You may be seated. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, I thank you for the privilege it is to open your word today. And I know that this passage may seem strange to us. It, it may not immediately resonate with our hearts but I know that there is so much here that can encourage us and point us to you, our refuge. Help us to see this morning our hearts. Help us this morning to see and have compassion on those who may have really close connections to the story. Would you help us to really sympathize, truly step into this passage this morning? And God, you know that I want to come to you in weakness and in fear with much trembling like the Apostle Paul. And I pray that my speech and my message are not in plausible words of wisdom, God, but in a demonstration of the Spirit and of power so that my brothers and sisters hear that their faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. God, would you do that work this morning? Your spirit we need desperately. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're in the book of Joshua. I want to just remind you of where we've come from. The book of Joshua is about Israel coming into the land that is promised to them. God, all through Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, 
you hear God telling them about this land of promise. And the book of Joshua is the story of them coming into the land of promise. And we've seen amazing stories, right? We've seen a Jordan River at flood stage be parted. We've seen the walls of Jericho come down. We've seen the defeat of uh, Israel because of sin. And then we saw them repent and there be victory. And then we saw battles where God held the sun still. We've seen so much in the book of Joshua. And the last time I preached in Joshua in January, we got to what would seem like a really boring passage for us. We saw five chapters where it says, and to this tribe they gave this part of the land, and to this tribe they gave this part of the land. And it just went on and on. And we saw that there it pointed to Christ being our portion and that he is the one who really ultimately fulfills the promises. So now we come to Joshua chapter 20. In Joshua chapter 20, if you were listening, it's a story about real-life tragedies. Real-life tragedies. And it's also about the mercy and justice and compassion of God for terrible, terrible circumstances. And I think the only way you're going to be able to really connect to this passage today is if you try to imagine yourself in this situation. You're going to need to put yourself into this story to imagine what it would be like for the different parties that are involved. So let me just jump in. I'm going to do two things this morning. I'm going to walk through the chapter and just explain what we see here in Joshua 20. And then after that, I'm going to say, well, why does this matter to us? What does it teach us? Okay? So let's just begin by going through the passage. Joshua 20, verses 1 through 3, it says, Then the Lord said to Joshua, Say to the people of Israel, Appoint cities of refuge, of which I spoke to you through Moses, that the manslayer who strikes any person without intent or unknowingly may flee there. They shall be for you a refuge from the avenger of blood. So that first thing I highlighted there is that of which I spoke to you through Moses. So what is he talking about there? In order to know what he's talking about, you have to go backwards. So Exodus 21 is the first time that God mentions these cities of refuge, and they're not even called that yet. God says to Moses in Exodus 21, he says, whoever strikes a man so that he dies shall be put to death. But if he did not lie in wait for him, but God let him fall into his hand, then I will appoint for you a place to which he may flee. But then he goes on, but if a man willfully attacks another to kill him by cunning, you shall take him from my altar. So what are we talking about here? This appointed place to flee is a place to run to safety. It's going to be a place where a person in this situation, we'll get into what this is about, could go for safety. Then you get to Numbers. Numbers chapter 35 is a long chapter that explains these cities that we see in Joshua chapter 20. So there we see that this is about what we call today in our language accidental manslaughter. It's not about murder. It's about accidents. 
And in Numbers 25, uh, 35, 22 to 23, you see an example of what he talks about. So he gives an example of, in their world, how an accident as horrible as this might happen. He says, but if you pushed this person suddenly without hatred, enmity, or, or hurled anything on him without lying in wait. In other words, like if you imagine um, they're, they're working and somebody pushes a rock off of a cliff because they're doing some kind of construction, somebody's down below, accidentally gets killed. Verse 23, or use the stone that could cause death, and without seeing him, it dropped on him so that he died, though he was not his enemy and did not seek his harm. You see, the intent here is he's talking about people are going to die. <laughs> It'll be accidents. And he gives an example. And then um, that's the first explanation in Numbers 35 of these cities of refuge. He, God speaks to them about it again in Deuteronomy 19. And he, here he gives more examples of, okay, here's another scenario where somebody may accidentally be killed. As when someone goes into the forest with his neighbor to cut wood and his hand swings the axe to cut down a tree and the head slips from the handle and strikes his neighbor so that he dies, he may flee to one of these cities and live. Isn't that horrible? Now, I, I remember uh, when I was a, a boy, my, my dad and my brother and his friend were working out on the front porch using the axe, and the axe head came off and whacked my friend's his skull. And it just ended up being a gash that he needed scissor, or, uh, stitches for, but that could have been awful. These kinds of things happen, right? So, Obviously, if it was mentioned in Exodus, and then a whole chapter in Numbers 35 about these cities of refuge, and then again in Deuteronomy 19, and now you get to Joshua 20, and then we get a whole chapter on it. This is important to God. There actually, if you go through the Old Testament, through the, the first five books, and all those laws, there's not a lot of repeat for specific things. And if God repeats it, Four times, three times in the Pentateuch and then now in Joshua 20, it's really important for us to get it, get this, which is really weird because you're like, we live in a world that has laws that handle this. But bear with me. We need to understand what happens here. But the first thing I want you to think about, and this is I'm going to ask for some input from you. Imagine you're the person who accidentally killed someone. What might be going through your head and your heart at that moment? Yeah, whoops. That's a good start. <laughs> despair. Charity saying despair. Yes. Feel that. What else? Fear. What's going to happen? Imagine you today. How many of you have been driving at night, and sometimes the lighting around here is horrible. And you see somebody coming out, and you're like, oh, my word. And imagine if you hit them. How are you going to feel? So despair and fe fear. What else? Regrets. When are the guilt? When are those feelings going to go away? Never. This is life-altering. Is life altering. So keep that in your mind. So then we get, so verses one through three of chapter 20 kind of talk about there's these cities of refuge. The next verses talk about the process. If this happens, here's what you're going to do. And the first step is to flee, to flee to the city of refuge. Verse four says, 
he, the manslayer, shall flee to one of these cities. Run. They're to run to where this city is. The next part of that is he's then to, when he gets to the city, he's to stand at the entrance of the gate and explain his case to the elders. This is weird to us. You have cities would be surrounded by a wall, particularly with maybe one or two gates, but there'd be a main gate. And the elders would hang out there at the day, during the day. An important business would happen there. Covenants would be made there. Judges, uh, cases would be heard there. Business was done there. So if you are the manslayer, you run to the gate and you tell them this is what happened. And they're to hear his immediate case and say, yeah, this sounds plausible. You can come in. Then we see that it says they take him into the city and they, uh, they're giving him protection. They're going to give him this place and he, rest- he stays there with him. Now, I say they're protecting the manslayer. Who are they protecting him from? Well, if we look at the next verse, and if the avenger of blood pursues him. Now, my mind, if you say avenger today, goes somewhere. That's not what we're talking about, okay? <laughs> Kids, this is where your minds go if you say avengers, right? <laughs> That's not what we're talking about. The word avenger of blood, it's really a bad translation, <laughs> I, I hate this. It seemed like I'm like correcting translations. But avenger is the word goel in Hebrew. Goel is the same word for Boaz in the book of Ruth, the kinsman redeemer. A goel is a rescuer, a retributor of justice, a redeemer. So when I am reading this passage, when you read this passage, I want you to think this is a nearest relative. So imagine what this is like. And, and as I was preaching, through, preparing to, to preach through this passage, this passage resonates very close to me because I've had this happen in my life. My father was killed by accidental manslaughter on Catlin Road. And it was an accident. The man was driving. Kids in the car, distracted. My brothers, my family, we had a mixture of emotions. And it went bad. It went bad for 15 years. There's all kinds of mess and and. I praise God that there's healing now in our family. But if you can imagine, I can imagine, because I've seen it, the, the emotions that well up in the family of the person who was killed. Think about it. Your blood boils hot. The, the, the jealous love clouds your vision. You just feel that. If you have a brother or a sister and they were accidentally killed, you're not going to be thinking very objectively, are you? The avenger, their job 
was to go and seek retribution. Not vengeance, it's different, but retribution. And there's a reason. So if you look at Numbers 35, where it talks about the cities of refuge, it actually talks about the purpose of this Goel person. It's not for the accidental manslaughter, but realize that the person who is the nearest nearest living relative doesn't know for sure whether it's accidental manslaughter or murder. Think about this. So this is after it gives you an explanation of an accident. It says, but if he struck him down with an iron object so that he died, he's a murderer. The murderer shall be put to death. And if he struck him down with a stone tool that could cause death and he died, he is a murderer. The murderer shall be put to death. Or if he struck him down with a wooden tool that could cause death and he died, he is a murderer. The murderer shall be put to death. And then it says, who does that? It's the nearest living relative. This was the system of justice, the laws that God put in place for that time and place. The avenger of blood, the goel of blood, shall himself put the murderer to death. When he meets him, he shall put him to death. And if he pushed him out of hatred or hurled something at him, lying in wait. See how there's a totally different scenario here. But this Goel doesn't know the difference. All he knows is, this is my job. It is my responsibility to bring balance to this family. Or an enmity struck him down, in hatred struck him down with his hands so that he died. Then he who struck the blow shall be put to death. He is a murderer. The avenger of blood shall put the murderer to death when he meets him. If we look at Deuteronomy 25, I'm not going to read that because there are young people here. But that describes this Goel person, this kinsman redeemer, their job. If my brother, if I died, it basically says that my nearest brother is to take my job as Audrey's husband. But he's also meant to be this protector of the family to enforce justice. That's who this is. Let's get back to the passage. The congregation in this city of refuge, the group of people that live there, are to protect the manslayer. He comes, he flees here, he presents his case, the elders hear it, they say, that sounds plausible, You're going to stay with us. You will be protected. Verse 5 of Joshua 20 then says, And if the avenger of blood pursues him, the city, the congregation there is not to give him up into his hand because he struck his neighbor unknowingly and did not hate him in the past. So they are to protect him until, verse 6, a trial. So it's not like they just get to keep him here. He comes and presents a case, says, this is what happens. They say, fine, you stay here. We're gonna, when there's a good time that's appropriate, we can, we're going to have a trial by your peers. And he remains in that city until he stood before the congregation for judgment, until the death of him who is the high priest at the time. When the high priest dies... The manslayer may return to his home. So that assumes that this trial at the beginning of the verse came back with an innocent verdict. If the trial came back with guilty, they put him out of the city 
and the Goel does his job. But assuming that he's innocent, he then stays in the city until the high priest there dies. And at that point, when the high priest dies, the Goel's responsibility for retribution is complete as well, and the manslayer. And they can both go to their homes, to the town from where they fled. So, four through six laid out that process. What happens if you accidentally kill somebody? Now, verses seven through eight, we actually see that they obey. God had spoken this to Joshua, said, go do this, and they actually do it. So they set apart these cities. Now, I wanted to show you a map. And the way the map is situated, if you read the text, it starts down here with Hebron, goes up, up, and then comes here and goes up. So it's like trying to show you complete whole coverage of, this, of the area of Israel. Now, what do you notice about the distribution of these cities? They are closer together in the mountains. So if you know your geography, it's very difficult to get anywhere around here. Down here, not so much. Good. There is a little bit of overlap where there's, where there's really mountainous terrain. What were you going to say, Todd? Separated by the river. They are, it is separated by the river. So we talk about the Jordan River. The, west, or the east side of the Jordan River, when Israel came from the wilderness, they came down from here, came up, and they first came across here. And in Deuteronomy and in Numbers, we see that Moses gave some of those tribes, two and a half tribes, these three cities and their land right away. And then here today in our passage, they're actually setting these three cities up. But also notice that there's like complete coverage of the whole country. And all of these cities are about one to two days journey apart from each other. So no matter where you are, in Israel, within about a one to two day journey, you could get to one of these cities. So he set them up in a way, thinking about the need to be able to get there quickly. Okay? Then we get to verse 9, the end of the passage. It says, And these were the cities designated for all the people of Israel. And then I want you to see this. And for the stranger sojourning among them. Do you know who that is? It's not Israel. It could be foreigners living there. Could even be potential enemies. So this whole protection system, this asylum-type city where you could go and be protected, was for everyone. Everyone. And what's the purpose? So that anyone that killed a person without intent, it was an accident, could flee there, so that they don't die by the hand of the avenger of blood till they stand before the congregation. Okay. Does that make sense as far as what the whole passage is talking about? It's a little bit foreign to us because today, if you accidentally kill someone, there's a system of justice. You tried, all those things, right? But this is the way God instituted for accidental manslaughter in that day to be handled. And I think it teaches us a lot. And that's what I want us to see next. So we've understood what the passage is about. Let's look and see what does this teach us 
first about God, all right? What does this teach us about God? I think that it first teaches us that he's a God of mercy. He's a God of mercy. He set up a place of protection in these situations because he understands the heart of man, right? And by doing this, he's setting up preventing further tragedy. I know the, the roller coaster of emotions that went through my family. It would have been very easy for any of us to just go and, and commit some further horrible tragedy after that. And God in his mercy sets these cities up so that there, you don't add tragedy to tragedy. I think it also teaches us that he's a God of justice. He set up a system of retribution for murder and a system for how to prevent, how to handle it when there's accidents. This is really important because you can probably already start to see that our system of justice in the United States was very much shaped by this particular concept. These passages we're looking at, Numbers 35, Deuteronomy 19, and Joshua 20, shaped our system of justice because in there is built in this notion of you are innocent until proven guilty. That, that's very, I mean, how many of you appreciate that, <laughs> right? If you are, if you've done, been accused of a crime in this country, you're supposed to be innocent until proven guilty. Now, we may see some problems with that lately. Um, there's a presumption that you're guilty, but the law doesn't treat you that way. And if you are like me, you really prize that. But when I was studying, this commentator Dodson had made this really great comment that I think it hit my heart. I hope it'll hit yours. He says, if you prize the principle of innocent until proven guilty, do you practice it in your heart? When we reserve judgment, so we hold back making judgments in our heart about a situation, and even ungodly and suspicious thoughts in our hearts until we know the truth of a matter, then we not only grant the assumption of innocence to the other person, we maintain a loving and truthful attitude. That's really important for us. I mean, it's, this, this passage seems very distant to us, but I think when you start to see this, like, okay, this is a lot closer to home because I know of horrible things that are even in the news today, and my heart wants to go ahead and presume their guilt. And it's important for us to reserve. If I appreciate the, be, the innocent until proven guilty, I need to hold that in my heart towards that other person. The other thing I think we see about God having, being a God of justice is that in this situation, while he set up the cities of refuge as a place of protection, it's also a place of penalty. He's not allowed to leave the city. He runs. He doesn't take his family with him. And he has to stay there until the high priest dies. So... I think this shapes our idea of how manslaughter should be treated as well, right? You're protected, but you're also 
cut off from your family until a long time, until a time that you don't even know. I think this also teaches us, though, that God is a God of compassion. Teaches us that this is for everyone. Did you catch that? For the stranger sojourning there. Leviticus 19.34 reveals to us the heart of God towards foreigners, towards those who are outsiders. I think this is very important for us to hear. You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you, and you shall love him as yourself. For you were strangers in the land of Egypt yourself. I am the Lord your God. I don't think this is making, and I'm not making a statement on immigration law here, folks. I think those are important. I don't think it works very well in our country. But I think your heart attitude should reflect the God of compassion's heart attitude towards those who are strangers among you. And it may be immigrants, but it may just be people who aren't like you, <laughs> right? There needs to be a heart of compassion because God has a, is a God of compassion towards even people that are not his own called elected people. He's calling us to all have a heart of compassion. What's interesting is that this idea of cities of refuge, a place where you could run to for protection and wait to have a jury of peers assess the situation, and furthermore, that it's open to everyone, was completely unheard of in the ancient Near East. If you study the old... Um, history and civilizations around that area, this concept is completely absent. The retributor, that was there. <laughs> but the idea of protection until then was, is not anywhere else except in the Israelite community. It shows us that this is a God of mercy, compassion, and justice. But what does this passage teach us about ourselves? What does it teach us about us as people? Well, first of all, it's very clear that, I mean, we live in a broken world, right? These things happen. Accidents happen, whether by negligence or just human frailty. I mean, I, <laughs> accidents happen. I have, I'm healing from a couple of broken ribs. <laughs> I'm putting him on the spot. He's going to feel bad. My son was giving me a hug, and I asked for a little bit of a chiropractic adjustment there, <laughs> and I, it happened. He had no intention at all of, of hurting me. Accidents happen. What's that? Or did he? Maybe. <laughs> no, William is definitely not. Accidents happen in this world. But you know what? I think it, it also, we, I mean, in other words, we should expect these things. We should not be surprised. But it also reminds us that it's kind of wired into us to want justice, to want vengeance, to want retribution. If you've had anything horrible like this in your life, you've been sinned against awfully, or someone you know has been sinned against awfully, that sense in you that the person who did that should pay is wired into you, I think, from the image of God. Because God does not allow sins to go unpunished. 
the very fact that you have that desire in you shows you that there's something right. That's important for us to know. But at the same time, we do not live in the Israel. Their laws for governing their civil society do not apply to us. In fact, God specifically speaks to us in Romans 12, 19. I forgot to put the reference there. But he says in Romans 12, 19, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. How we balance how that worked, like that God says this to New Testament Christians, but he didn't say that to them. He did say that in principle, because he sets up here, even in Romans, in the same chapter, that he ordains authorities who wield the sword. So there is a place for who will execute justice in our world today. We have to keep this in mind as well. And I want to ask you to consider and ask God, how, have I might, how might I be harboring vengeance in my own heart and mind? If there is any of that, there is no place for that in your heart. God's calling you to, to change from that. I think the third thing it tells us, reminds us about human is, humans is that life is sacred and God wants it protected. That's the whole idea with having the city of refuge is that God did not want further bloodshed carried out simply because of that built-in desire for vengeance and retribution. No, he's saying no, hold off. Life is sacred. Now beyond all these things, I think it's really good for us to imagine how everyone in this story would, might be feeling. We talked a little bit about how the killer might feel. All their life, a sorrow a sorrow that probably time isn't going to heal. God can heal it. But it might be till the, till he takes you home. If you're the victim or the victim's, the victim's family, sorrow, then only God's going to heal. I, I, had, I had, was looking through the songs this morning last night, I told Andrews, but it'd be nice to just flip the whole service and have the sermon first and then all the song. It didn't work out. But if you just think about the songs we sang this morning, come as you are, wandering, and a sorrow that only heaven can heal. And then just, I was thinking of the be still my soul. Be still my soul, thy God doth undertake to guide the future as he has the past. Thy hope, thy confidence, let nothing shake. All now mysterious shall be bright at last. And the third verse, the hours hastening on when we shall be forever with the Lord, when disappointment, grief, and fear are gone. We know there is a time, but he's asking us to wait in that moment. Think about even just the difficulties if you were the elders there's a lot 
of weight on your shoulders and the peers, the jury, to make sure a right judgment is made. But how does this passage, though, point us to Christ? That's the question. Every time I come to the book of Joshua, I look, this is amazing truth. I could moralize it. And that's kind of what some of the things I said here about, you know, it teaches about life is sacred and justice. That's good stuff. That's what God teaches here. But all of the Old Testament is to point us forward to Jesus. So let's look first about how this points us to Christ, points us to God. This word refuge, you don't find it until you get to Numbers 35. The word refuge, you go Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and finally the word shows up when talking about these cities of refuge. And then it's again in Deuteronomy 19 when it explains the cities of refuge, and then here in Joshua. After that, though, the word refuge gets all pointed in the book of Psalms and some of the prophets about what that passage that Matt read, Psalm 46, God is our refuge. It shows us that God is the one to whom we should run to. In Psalm 34, 22, the Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. And that commentator who I put his quote up earlier, he said, if God then is our refuge, then like the manslayer, we must flee to him. And that word flee, if you'd go back through Joshua 20, you'd see it's four times in just nine verses, which makes it a bit of a key word, a key word, because to flee is to run to with trust. I'm running to this place or this person or this thing that I can put my trust in knowing it will protect me and it will provide refuge. That's exactly what David is saying in 2 Samuel 22, 1-3. And David spoke to the Lord the words of this song when, on the day when the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul, he said, The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge. My shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold and my refuge. My Savior, you save me from violence. I call upon the Lord who's worthy to be praised and I'm saved from my enemies. How do we see that Jesus is this? We see that Jesus is the true and lasting refuge of our souls. The second thing and the last thing I really want to show you here is the death of the high priest part. This is very interesting. Think about it. He goes to the city. He's protected there. He gets to hear, uh, sit under a trial. If the verdict was innocent, he still remains there under a penalty until the death of the high priest. You may not know much about the Old Testament, but there were a series of priests 
and then a high priest over them. Every year, a new high priest, or not every year, um, a high priest for his life, and then their handoff, right? The high priest would be the one who represented all of the nation to God, the mediator. And eventually he would die. Hebrews talks about this high priest. It says in Hebrews 6, 17 through 18, so when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, in other words, God's purposes do not change. How did God show that unchangeable character? He guaranteed it with an oath. And when you and I take oaths, we swear by something higher. That's why you put your hand on the Bible, because you are swearing by someone higher. Well, God swore the promise to us on something he swore it on himself because there's no one higher than him. It says, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled, we flee for refuge, might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. And we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever. After the order of Melchizedek, and I could get into Melchizedek. We don't have time for that today. It's a long one. The point being is that Jesus became our high priest to represent us. Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to close with this quote from the commentator. I, I want you to see, it's amazing, <laughs> the connection here. It's a tiny print. When the innocent manslayer found refuge in one of the six cities, he had to live there until the death of the high priest. Then and only then could he return home. And that regulation provided a significant shadow, foreshadow of the New Testament parallel. Only through the death of our high priest are we set free. We can go home, our eternal and heavenly home, because Jesus has died. And there's simply no more simple gospel message than this. Through the death of another, we are set at liberty. The question I love that he proposes, and what I propose to you, have you been set free? Do you know the mercy of God in Christ, so beautifully pictured in the cities of refuge? If not, then flee. Flee to Christ. You may wonder, you may say, I have done awful things. Maybe you haven't murdered someone. Maybe you haven't accidentally killed someone. But you know, I've done awful things and I deserve God's judgment. You are in bondage then. Your sins are held against you because God is a just and holy God. But God made a way for your sins to be forgiven through 
Christ, his death can set you free. And his resurrection guarantees that forever. If you have not turned to Christ, today is the day. He offers freedom that will last forever. He offers you that healing of sorrow that only he can do. He can lift your shame. He can lift your guilt. Only Christ is that ultimate and lasting refuge. Amen. Let me read to you the words of an old hymn we should learn someday. Jesus, lover of my soul, let me to thy bosom fly. While the nearer's water, nearer waters roll, while the tempest still is high, hide me, O oh my Savior, hide, till the storm of life is past. Safe into the haven guide, O oh, receive my soul at last. Other refuge have I none. Hangs my helpless soul on thee. Leave, ah, leave me not alone. Still support and comfort me. All my trust on thee is stayed. All my help from thee I bring. Cover my defenseless head with the shadow of thy wing. Plenteous grace with thee is found. Grace to cover all my sin. Let the healing streams abound, make and keep me pure within. Thou of life the fountain art, freely let me take of thee. Spring thou up within my heart, rise to all eternity. Let's pray. God, we are so, um, I am so thankful that you are a God of mercy and justice and compassion I'm thankful that you understand us, that you understand our weakness and our frailty. And God, without your son, Jesus, we have, we are defenseless. Our helpless souls depend on you. God, if there is someone today here who is not, has not found that freedom, who knows the weight of their sin and is looking for happiness and satisfaction or relief or refuge in anything but you. I pray today that you would help them to see that their city of refuge is Jesus Christ alone, that there is no other hope that will sustain forever. Would you bring them to you today? For those of us who you have brought in, would you help us to see that we must still go to the city of refuge and put our hope in you? Help us to cling to you, O lover of our souls. In your son's precious and holy name we pray, amen. amen.